generally speaking, we look at Tuma as something negative and Tahara as something positive. A man that is uh, impure is called Tomei, a woman is called Timea. A man that is pure is called Tahor, a woman is called Tahora. Now, the problem is, though, that Tuma in the Torah is not always used in the same sense. For example, uh, the Torah describes non-kosher food as Tomei. But it's not really Tomei in the halachic sense, it's Tomei in a spiritual sense, that it distances you from God. But usually when we talk about Tuma, we are referring to very specific halachic rules, namely, a person that is Tamei cannot go to the Beis HaMikdash. A person that is Tamei cannot eat korbanos. Uh, a person that is Tamei cannot eat a truma if he's a Kohen and the like, meaning Tamei has certain disabilities that are primarily connected to the Beis HaMikdash and its service. And when one is not Tamei, he does not have those disabilities. So in all other respects, a person that's Tomei is a regular Jew. Davins, keeps mitzvahs, learns Torah, goes to show, counts for a minion, you know, if it's a man who counts for a minion. In other words, Tomei is not pariah. Tomei does not mean you're excluded from Judaism, but it means there are certain laws connected to the Beis HaMikdash that you're not allowed to uh, do. Now, Tuma can come from many, many sources. A person could be Tamei because they've come in contact with a dead body. And that's called the Tuma that arises from mace. And that can happen in three ways. You can either touch the dead body or you can move the dead body, even if you do it by a stick. Or even if you're under the same roof as a dead body. Right, let's imagine uh, there's a, there would, God forbid, be a dead body in this room. I'm 10 feet away from it. I'm Tomei because I'm under the same roof. Now, roof is a very interesting point because if you have a tree whose branches overhang a grave and overhang a person, the person and the mace are under the same roof, so the person actually becomes Tomei. Right, that's called Tumas Mace. Now, if I'm a Yisrael, I'm allowed to become Tomei with Tomas Mace, meaning there's no Avera involved. The only thing is I can't go to the base of Mikdash. If I'm a Kohen, there's a special prohibition that a Kohen cannot become Tomei Tomas Mace. Okay, a Yisrael is allowed, a Kohen is not allowed, but whether you're a Yisrael or a Kohen, once you have Tomas Mace, you are disabled from going to the base of Mikdash or eating Korbanos until you undergo purification rituals. Now, lahalacha, this will apply even today. So if I'm a Kohen, I'm not allowed to go into a cemetery. Actually, it's interesting, let's think about this. Why is it so pushit? In other words, I, I said there are three ways you can track Tuma from a dead body. Touching a dead body, moving a dead body, or being under the same roof as a dead body. Now, so why is it so obvious? Everyone knows this. A Kohen is not allowed to go into a cemetery because a Kohen is not allowed to make himself Tomei. Mm -hmm. Well, how is he making himself Tomei? He walks into a cemetery. He's not touching the dead body. 
and he's not moving the dead body, and as long as he's outside, not in the building, he's not sharing a common roof. So what's the problem, really, with a Kohen in a cemetery? So in reality, it's interesting, in reality, it's really a rabbinic rule that a Kohen is not allowed to be within four amos of a mace because here is the concept. This is a little, little bit of a technical concept. A person can become his own roof. Let's imagine I bend over a grave. If I bend over a grave, which contains the body, then I am under the same roof as the grave because my body is the roof for me and for the, you understand the concept? So theoretically, if I stand, if I stand vertical next to a grave, the grave is here and I simply stand here, I don't become tummy. But the Rabbanan prohibited a Kohen from coming near a grave lest he bend over the grave. You see? So it's not a Doraisa. If a Kohen goes into a cemetery, it's not necessarily a Torah violation, but it's a Gezerah lest he bend over, because if he bent over, it would be a Torah violation uh, because uh, he is tending over the grave. And certainly, if there's any common trees over graves, uh, then, then there would be a Doraisa. In other words, the trees could be an OL, buildings could be an OL, protruding roofs can be an OL. You've got to be very, very careful about this. A Yisrael has no problem. Now, this Isra of a Kohen only applies to a male Kohen. It does not apply to a Bas Kohen. So although in Kabbalah there are some Kabbalists that say women should never go to cemeteries, that's a general, that's a separate uh, Kabbalistic reason, but in terms of Tuma, a Bas Kohen has no problem going. The only thing is, some people are machmir if a Bas Kohen is pregnant she should not go into a cemetery because maybe she will be carrying a boy and the boy should not uh, become tummy. That's only if her husband's a kind of... Oh, yeah, you're correct. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. That, that, that is correct. Uh, in fact, it's, it's not really a boss coin. In other words, a wife, a wife of a coin that's pregnant. You're, you're correct. This law has nothing to do... What I just said has nothing to do with the boss coin. That, uh, a wife of a coin is normally allowed to go into the cemetery, but if she's pregnant, a wife of a coin should not because maybe she's carrying a, a boy, okay? Yeah? What happens by Kivrei So that's a very interesting question. So we have a concept of Kivrei Tzadikin, uh, right? Many people go to the Kivarim, uh, well, everywhere there are Kivrei Tzadikim, Kivrei Tzadikim in Yerushalayim, Kivrei Tzadikim in Svat. Uh, you have the Rebbe Zohel, uh, you have Rav Nachman in Uman, right? Famous, famous, great, great Tzadikim, and uh, people go and they daven by the Kever of a Tzadik, uh, is there any problem with a Kohen going there? So there is a minority opinion, and please, this is a minority opinion, that actually says that because the Gemara tells us tzaddikim are considered living even in their death, uh, a, a righteous person does not convey Tuma, and a Kohen could go. So there is such an opinion, but it is very much a minority opinion, and the mainstream halacha absolutely says that a Kohen is only uh, is al uh, only allowed to go to Kippur Tzadikim if he keeps four Amos away from the grave. 
and there is no overhang roof or whatever it is. By the way, the overhang roof is a real, real important uh, issue, uh, whether it's in uh, Uman, whether it's in Meiron. Uh, that's often going to be a big problem because they have all sorts of buildings and structures and trees around uh, graves, and uh, Cohen has to pay very, very careful attention uh, to those issues because if there's an overhang uh, over the grave and over you, over the Cohen, uh, that's going to convey Tuma through the principle of Ohel. Ohel is a common, common roof. Yeah. And so, for example, in the Rambam, that they built a structure that would be a problem or in their own? Or yes, own. yes. Uh, whenever there's a structure uh, over a grave, a building, uh, a Kohen cannot, again, the minority opinion would allow it because Sadiqim do not convey Tuma, uh, but the majority opinion is that it's prohibited. Now, this even raises questions sometimes for museums. You know, you go to a museum. Uh, museums sometimes have, uh, I mean, not British, I'm not Jewish bodies, <laughs> hopefully not, but, you know, they may have bodies of American Indians or, or, you know, they may just have a skeletons. Now, the problem is, if I'm a, now, according to many opinions, even non-Jewish corpses convey Tuma through Ohel. So Kohanim might have to be careful regarding which museums uh, they could go to and the like, because there are museums that contain bodies or skeletons, and that could convey to Masawel. Other people are lenient if it's a non-Jewish corpse. Uh, in fact, uh, all sorts of problems. I mean, the problem is uh, even airplanes, airplanes that fly over cemeteries might constitute a tent over the cemetery and the tuma goes into the plane, right? So there are different uh, complications. So uh, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, these laws are very complicated. I don't, I don't, I don't want to go into all of them. There is a concept that even if a Kohen or anybody is under the same roof as a dead body, uh, you can create a barrier within the OL. So for example, uh, if you're wearing a plastic bag, so to speak, that blocks the tumor. So you may have seen a picture. Did you ever see this picture? About a guy who was sitting uh, in an El Al flight that was flying over a cemetery. I guess he was a Kohen. And he was, he was wearing a plastic bag, a totally transparent plastic bag. To me, the funniest, part of, the, the funniest part of the picture was he was sitting next to somebody who was just reading a magazine. And you're, you're sitting next to a guy that's wearing a plastic bag. And reading a magazine, having a cup of coffee. Like, you know, nothing unusual here. But, uh, but the guy was wearing a plastic bag. And, and this is a complicated uh, halacha, that there are ways of blocking tumma. And even if there are some holes in the bag so you can breathe, interestingly, the blockage doesn't get invalidated unless it's the size of a fist, kind of a hole that's equal to a fist by a fist, meaning you can actually have a lot of little holes. Around his feet? Yes, he had, to, he had to be totally in it. He had to tie it under under his feet. That's correct. That's correct. Every part every part of his body had to be encased in this plastic bag. You know. Then what happens if like he's in a building that has a hundred apartments and somebody passes away in the building, or if, like it's so complicated. Whole so 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 it is complicated because really. In a sense, every story, every room is different. Let's take an example. Let's imagine, God forbid, there would be a dead body in the office there, right? the office here. <laughs> so technically, we're under the same roof, but because this is a separate room, as long as this door is closed, mm -hmm. the tuma does not transfer. 
So a calling in this room, if a calling got word that somebody died in the next room, uh, either we would instruct that room to keep the door closed until the Kohen leaves, mm-hmm. or we would tell the Kohen to leave by the window, which I guess is not possible here with the bars. Uh, you see, the issue, the issue is that each room is separated out as long as there's no common you know, open doors that connects everything. So the window counts. You can go through the window. You can go through a window, but only, yes, the window would be good, but only if the window is not connected. I mean, if a window would be connected to the adjacent room, that would be a problem. That would bring in the impurity rather than so separate. This is, the window connects outside, but the door connects to the room. That's correct. That's correct. So uh, that's something to be careful about. So uh, when a, uh, no, a Kohen normally cannot go into a hospital. In fact, even if a Kohen, okay, a Kohen can certainly not visit someone in a hospital, that's for sure. But even if the Kohen needs to go to the hospital, if it's a matter of life and death, then of course he could go because a Kohen is allowed to violate the laws of Tuma to save his life. But if it's like for a non-Pikuach Nefesh situation, uh, he wouldn't be allowed to go unless it's like Shari Tzedek, which halachically sets up the rooms, that when there's a death in one room, the Tuma does not, they have like double doors, so at all times, a door is closed, meaning uh, they close the doors when someone dies, etc., and, and therefore the Tuma does not travel down the corridor. You see, if you have a long corridor with many rooms and the doors are open, then the death in one room will bring the tuma into every room in the corridor. But if the doors are closed, they're not going to, it's not going to travel that way. So Sharit said, you know, again, I mean, uh, in the United States, the hospitals don't care, they're not even aware of this, but uh, Sharit Tzedek will, will try to make it a Kohen compliant, compliant hospital. Is, it okay. tree, is the tree halachically, like from the Torah, considered a room? Or is that also rabbinic? Tree? Yeah. That's the Torah, Torah. Torah. Yeah, that's absolutely Torah, yeah. The only thing that's rabbinic is uh, to be within four amos of a grave when there's no tree. But when there's a tree, that's a Torah uh, tent. So tent is not is understood to be lavdafka tent and the like. Okay. Now, again, I, I want to make it very clear that the Tuma applies both to a Yisrael and a Kohen. The prohibition of Tuma is only on a Kohen. But Israel becomes Tameh. He does become Tameh, so he couldn't go to the base of Mikdash or, or whatever it is. Now, what are the purification rituals, right? If a person is a Tameh mace, and it makes no difference if it's by touching, if it's by moving, if it's by ohel, uh, I'm Tameh. So what's the rule? How long am I Tameh for? I am Tameh for seven days, seven days, and, and, and then I have to undergo purification rituals. For any of these three? Any of these three. And there are two purification rituals that a Tameh mace must undergo. One, which we read this week, is the ritual of para aduma. And the other is the ritual of going to a mikveh. So I just want to give you a little bit of a picture of what that looks like, right? We read in the Torah this week, this was the special maftir, uh, that uh, Klal Yisrael is commanded to take what is a red heifer. Now, for many years, I always imagined a red heifer was the color of a fire engine. Uh, That's not true, because that's really impossible. You would never find an animal that's the color. Really, the color of a para aduma is actually a fairly common color. 
It is the orange-brown that cows often have. So the color of a paraduma is not rare. The reason why paraduma is rare is because it has to be virtually 100% that color. You're allowed up to one black hair. Two black hairs, it's not valid. So it's not the color that's so unusual, but you're never going to find a cow that's like 100% that color. There'll always be a white hair or a black hair. And, you know, one hair. I mean, how many hairs does a cow have? Quite a lot. A cow, like, like whatever, is probably a few million hairs. So, so somebody has to take a magnifying glass and go over it, you know, you know, hair by hair by hair by hair by hair. And what's worse is, even if today it's all red, what if it changes tomorrow? You know, so uh, there's a real problem. That's why a paraduma is rare, but it's not a fire engine red. Okay, now... Paradumas are hard to find for a lot of reasons. Number one, the requirement of 100% red, no, the, 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 the orange-brown. Number two, if the animal did any work at all, meaning if it ever pulled a plow, no good. All right, you might say, well, I'll be sure not to do that. No, if I lean on it, let's say, you know, I'm, I'm milking it or whatever it would be, and then I rest my arm on it or I put my hat on it, that's called doing work with it. It's no good. And, you know, you've lost a lot of money that way because the paraduma, when the base of Mikdash had to buy one, they would pay a lot of money for a paraduma. So when you ruin the paraduma by putting your hat on top of it, like you, lo- you lost like a million dollars. How could they check if it was never working? Well... I guess the point would be they'd have to keep they'd have to keep tabs on it as soon as they get word that it was born. Meaning, as soon as uh, a paraduma gets born, you call up the Beis Hamikdash, and they will send mashkichim. You know, again, not that they have to watch it twenty four hours, but they basically have to supervise it and the like. Okay, so let's assume. If you remember the story, you remember the famous story in the Gemara about uh, the non Jew who Chazal hold up as the model of how to honor your parents. This is a non-Jew from Ashkelon, Dama ben Nesina. Was it two? Right, so the first, there are two stories, right. The first story was that uh, the Chachamim needed a jewel in the Kohen Gadol's breastplate, and he is the only one that had that jewel, and they were going to buy it from him for a lot of money, but the key to the jewelry box was under, under his father's head, and his father was taking a nap. He did not wake up his father even though he lost all of that money because he says, I'm not going to disturb my father. And that's an example of kibbutz of the aim. And as a reward, the next year he was given a paraduma, so he was able to get all of the money that he lost because paradumas were very, very expensive. By the way, that famous story, I have a, good, I have a question on that story. I mean, how would your father feel? Let's imagine somebody comes to you. I mean, did he do a good thing or did he do a stupid thing? I mean, let's say uh, you say, Dad, Abba, I want to tell you, you know, I was offered like $10 million for something, but I didn't want to wake you up. I mean, your father might say, are you nuts? (laughs) In other words, if your father wants you to wake him up, he would want you to wake him up. Shouldn't the halacha be that you wake him up, right? In other words, yeah, when your father, when your parent is sleeping, you don't make noise, you know, you don't uh, wake him up for for your uh, thing. But if it's something that you know for sure he would want you to wake him or her up, 
L'chayra, the halacha is pashut, that you wake him up, right? Uh, that, or wake, you know, I, I think so. So the question is, did Dhamma ben Nesina do the right thing? So here's the interesting point. The, the, the point I want to say is that maybe he did the wrong thing. And as Chazal are not using him as an example of what you should do, but they're using him as an example of how devoted he was. Meaning, yeah, he made a halachic mistake, but he was so devoted that it didn't bother him to lose the money. So sometimes when Chazal hold up somebody as a paragon of virtue, that doesn't always mean you follow what they did because maybe they were not correct, but you look at their heart and you look at their kavana. Okay, so be it as it may, let's assume the Beis HaMikdash has a paraduma. So what do they do? They shecht it, the Kohen shechts it, uh, the Kohen burns it down to ashes, and uh, the ashes are mixed with spring water. So you have a potion, and at that point, anybody who's Tamei met gets sprinkled with only even a little drop, and he gets sprinkled on day three and on day seven of their tuma. So for example, let's assume I, I, I got in contact with a dead body. I went to a cemetery on Monday. So day three is Wednesday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And day seven is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I will be sprinkled with paraduma water on Wednesday and on Sunday. Right, Sunday is day seven. After my second sprinkling, I go to the mikvah, you know, regular mikvah, and by Sunday night, the evening after my immersion in the mikvah, I am now ritually pure, and I am permitted to go to the base of mikdash. Okay, so again, if I became Tomei on Monday, I have sprinkling number one on Wednesday, Sprinkling number two on Sunday. Go to the mikveh on Sunday in the day. Don't confuse this with nida. I know, I know when you think about immersion, you're familiar with nida. Uh, please understand, the immersion for a Tamei Mace, when there was immersion, I'll, I'll explain what, what we do today, is in the daytime, not at night. Okay? Unlike a nida. So the person goes to the mikveh Sunday during the day. They will be allowed to enter the Beis Hamikdash starting Sunday night. That is the process of purification for a Tomei Mace. Now, today we do not have the Para Aduma ritual. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why we don't have it. Number one, it's hard to find a Para Aduma, but even if we found a Para Aduma, we don't have the Kohanim that are able to do this ritual. So as a result, what this means is any person that's a Tomei Met remains in that state forever and ever and ever. You can go to the mikvah, but even if you go to the mikvah a million times, that does not purify you without the sprinkling of para aduma. Now since almost everybody has been in a cemetery one time or another in their life, Halacha assumes that every one of us are becheskas. Cheskas means the assumption of Tomei Meis. Okay, everyone understands that? Because even if I haven't been in a cemetery for 10 years, 
If I went 10 years ago, I'm a Tamei Mace until I am sprinkled with the waters and ashes of the Para Aduma. Okay? So, what is the practical repercussion of this? So, as I indicated, a Tamei Mace is not allowed to enter the area of the base Hamikdash. That's an Iser de Oraisa. It is forbidden for a Tamei Mace. Something the matter with him? What's that? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. There's an Iser de Oraisa for a Tamei Mace to enter the area of the base Hamikdash. Iser de Oraisa, of Kares. One gets death in the hands of heaven. If you did it on purpose, if you did it by accident, you would have to bring a carbon. So let's stop here. Two questions. Does that Isser apply when there's no Beis Hamikdash? Right? There's an Isser the Ariser for a Tomei Mace to enter the area of the Beis Hamikdash. Okay, there is no Beis Hamikdash. Is this Usser at all? So I always tell you whenever you have a question in Halacha and you're given A, B, or Machlokas, Machlokas will always be the right answer, okay? And the answer is, this is Machlokas. According to the Rambam, this is very important, according to the Rambam, the holiness of the Beis HaMikdash applies even today, even after the destruction, even when there's Chorban, even when the Harabayas is occupied by mosques and other things, all the holiness of the Makom HaMikdash is still here today. So according to the Rambam, if it is usher for a Tomei Mes to enter the grounds of the Beis HaMikdash, that will apply 100% today. The Ravid, are you familiar with the Ravid? The Ravid is the great critique, uh, uh, critic of the Rambam. Uh, the Rambam is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, who lived in Egypt. And the Ravid is Rabbi Abraham ben David, who lived in France, a younger contemporary of the Rambam. And the Ravid, uh, every few paragraphs, if you, if you take the Mishnah Torah, which is the Rambam's code, so you will notice every few paragraphs there's like a few lines called Hasagos HaRivet, the criticisms of the Rivet. Like the Rivet says, I disagree. Uh, sometimes the Rivet is very acerbic. The Rivet will say, the Rambam is wasting paper here. Whatever, the Rivet is very, very sharp. And in advanced uh, learning, uh, what people always want to do, they always want to explain what is the basis of the argument between the Rambam and the Rivet. That's kind of a staple of advanced yeshiva learning. So this is a big machlokis, the Rambam and the Ravid. According to the Ravid, the Mokom HaMikdash does not have holiness once it is destroyed. Now that actually means, think about this, according to the Ravid, I am allowed today to enter the grounds of the Beis HaMikdash and even, even the Kodesh HaKadoshim. I, all of us, we are all permitted to enter the Kodesh HaKadoshim even today because it is the Shita of the Ravid that once the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, 
the area does not have Kedusha, the Shekhinah left that area until Mashiach comes and the third uh, temple will be built. This is the Shita of the Ravid. The Rambam very much argue, argues, and the Rambam takes the position that the area has Kedusha, even today, and therefore a Tamei Met cannot enter, and Lahalacha, we are Machmer, we are Machmer like the Rambam, we are Machmer like the Rambam. So we could say as a bottom line, a Tamei Met, which is all of us, until we have Paraduma, is not allowed to enter, now I, I left this term undefined, the area that is called Makom Hamikdash. Okay? So we now come to a second question. What is Makom Hamikdash? What is Makom Hamikdash? Yeah. Um, question on the Ravid. He was a student of the Rambam? No, he was not. Uh, the Ravid was not a student of the Rambam. The Ravid was a critic of the Rambam, okay. but he was not a student he came of the Rambam. Later. He came a little later. But, I mean, their lives overlapped. So he was more or less a later contemporary of the Rambam. And but he felt he had the freedom to argue with the Rambam. And he commented on the Rambam's like Mishnah Torah? Mishnah Torah, sure. Uh, pull out any volume of Mishnah Torah and you'll see like every few paragraphs the Ravid will have a comment. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's very interesting. The poskim are in disagreement. If the Ravid doesn't comment, do you infer that he agrees with the Rambam? That, that's an interesting machlokis in halacha because, you, because since he disagrees so many times, you might assume that when he doesn't say he disagrees, that means he agrees. Others say no. He may, he may disagree, but just didn't write it down, so you don't have a proof. In other words, Machlokas says, can you count the Ravid as a supporter of the Rambam when the Ravid does not dis- disagree uh, or does not explicitly note his disagreement? So this is called Hasogos Haravid. Hasogos means criticisms of the, of the Ravid. Okay, uh, as they say, the Ravid, uh, well, again, it's, as they say, analyzing the Machlokas, Rambam and the Ravid is always a big, big staple. I mean, the Rebbe does it uh, many, many times in his uh, talks on the Rambam, and really all, all of the great uh, Chronim uh, deal with that. That's a staple of uh, Talmudic scholarship. Okay, all righty, yeah. I wonder if, according to the Ravid, can the Beit HaMikdash be fully destroyed? Because even though, like, I, I'm not arguing that it's still there, like, I, but, yeah. like, but, but, the, but there's, there's still parts of it there. So, so that's an interesting question. The interesting question is, if the, the, the Ravid is positing that uh, once the base of Mikdash is destroyed, it does not have Kedusha. That's his, uh, that's his concept. So the question is, how much of it would have to be destroyed? Everything? What if two-thirds are destroyed? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm assuming, essentially, the way he would define it uh, is that if you don't have the walls of the Beis HaMikdash. Now, again, the Kotel is not the wall of the Beis HaMikdash. That's the wall of the Temple Mount. Okay. So now, this is the second question that's really important. So you do have the Ravid. According to the Ravid, amazingly enough, you would have no problem going into Harabayat, no matter where you go, even Mamish in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Amazing. You could go in. But we don't follow the Ravid. We, we say a Tomei Met is restricted. But what is the Malkam HaMikdash? So here, you have to envision the Malkam HaMikdash. And if you've seen the, uh, 
well, we used to, I don't know if they call it this, I don't know if they call it this way anymore. The, uh, there's a great, great, wonderful exhibit of Yerushalayim and the Beis HaMikdash. It's like, it's, it's like the size of this room, basically. Uh, it used to be in the Holy Land Hotel, so they call it the Holy Land Exhibit, but I think it moved to the Israel, Israel Museum. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they still call it the Holy Land Exhibit, but it's really, really great. You should see it. Uh, because it shows you not only the Beis HaMikdash and the Temple Mount, but it shows you like all of Yerushalayim, the upper city, the lower city, you know, where the poor people live. You see the difference in houses where the rich people lived, right? Like the upper part of the city was very lavish, huge houses, and the right. lower part, which was closer to the Mikdash, because, then, um, because this, it was, this is during Herod's reign. I mean, oh. yeah, yeah. You know, Yerushalayim essentially is just to give you a little geography. Yerushalayim is essentially a city, I don't mean modern Jerusalem, I'm talking about the old old Yerushalayim, that's built on two hills with a valley in between the two hills. Now the valley is almost indiscernible today. The east hill is Mount Moriah, which is the place where Avram sacrificed Yitzchak, and that's the Harabayas. The Harabayas is Har HaMoriah. That's to the east of the city. The West Hill is actually bigger. Hashem chose, just like by Harsina, Hashem chose a lower mountain. For the Beis HaMikdash, Hashem chose a lower mountain, Haramoria. The higher mountain is to the West, and that goes by the name today, Mount Zion, or Har Sion. Now, it's a little confusing because Mount Zion is not within the walls of the old city today. But you understand that the walls of the old city are walls built by Turkey. I mean, they're not by the, the, the Ottoman Empire. They're not the walls of, of, of the time of Chazal. And originally, Mount Zion was included in the, in the walls. Now, between these two hills, there was a great deep valley, which is almost not discernible today because it's been filled up. And that valley, Josephus calls it, the Tyropean Valley, T-Y-R-O-P-E-O-N, yeah, Tyropean Valley, which is Greek for Cheesemaker's Valley. I'm assuming that's because in the valley there were stores that made cheese, I guess, uh, whatever it would be. So you have Mount Zion, Tyropean Valley, and then you have Harabayat. So the upper city is on Mount Zion. That's where rich people lived, beautiful houses. Then the Tropian Valley, as you're approaching the Temple Mount, that's where all the poor people live. So the poor people live closer to the base of Mikdash. Then maybe there's a Musr there than the rich people. The rich people live further, further away. So that's upper city, lower city, and the like. Now, another thing I want to uh, tell you that a lot of people don't know. The designation of the Western Hill as Mount Zion, which in Hebrew is Har Tzion, is from the Christians. Meaning, when Tanakh uses the phrase Har Tzion, Mount Zion, it does not refer to that hill. Har Tzion in Tanakh is the Harabayas, or sometimes Yerushalayim. In fact, there is no word at all for the Western Mountain. The Western Mountain has no designated title. Spiritually, it was not important. Okay, so it's a little confusing. When you read about Mount Zion in Tanakh, actually it's not in the Torah, but in the Vim and Kesuvim, it is not the same as Mount Zion today. Mount Zion today, 
was a name given by the Christians to the Western Hill because they believed that King David, David HaMelech, was buried there. And in fact, uh, there is. The, there is something called the Kever of David HaMelech and Hartzion. But uh, based on our Messiah, that's not David HaMelech's Kever. That was, again, a Christian identification. Okay, and some people might argue with me on that, but, but I, think, uh, I think that's fairly, fairly right. In fact, a lot of things are that way. Uh, between the Old City and the Mount of Olives, there's a valley, right? Have you ever been on that site? Right, you have the, the Old City, the Golden Gate, which is the gate that Mashiach will go through. And then you have a valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives, Harazasim. So the name of that valley is a very famous valley that's mentioned a lot in Tanakh. That's the Valley of Kidron, Nachal Kidron, the Valley of Kidron. Now in the Valley of Kidron, Right? Uh, there are a few, like, monuments. Which, si- which side? This is to the east. This is the opposite of the Kotel. Right? The Kotel is west. So the, it, it, this is the, uh, in other words, imagine you go, you'd walk through all the way through the Harabayas to the other side. Okay. Right? So Harazesim is to the east of the Temple Mount. Right? So uh, that's the, uh, you can walk there, you can walk there. Uh, you know, people go there. Uh, and uh, so Harazesim is still a very, very sacred uh, cemetery. Many, many great tzaddikim are buried there. And the valley between the east wall, and, which is Turkish, it's not, the, it's not the original Kotel, the east wall and the Mount of Olives is called Nachal Kidrein. Huh? What's not the original Kotel? No, what I, mean, what I mean to say is this. On the West, when we daven at the Kotel, yeah. we're davening at something that actually was the Kotel of the Temple Mount when there was a Beis HaMikdash. Uh, right? It's, it's at least from Herod and maybe even from Shlomo HaMelech. Really, really old. But when you go around to the other side, right. the wall on the East... That's just a Turkish wall. I mean, the walls of the old city date from the 1500s. They're not uh, that. So what I'm saying is the eastern wall that has what's called the Golden Gates is from the Ottomans. That's not uh, an original Kotel in the sense. And that's, the Ottomans built it in the 1600s or 1500s. It's not, uh, okay? But the gate, you'll notice, it's called the Golden Gate, is a sealed up gate. It's not, uh, it's sealed up. Now that you see there was a gate there, but it got bricked up. Why is it bricked up? And you'll also notice there's a cemetery right there. There's all sorts of stories here. There's a cemetery, I don't know if you've been there. Uh, this is the Golden Gate. Uh, it's bricked up and there's like an Arab cemetery there. There's a whole story about this. The, the story is like this. The story is Chazal teach us that Moshiach is going to come from Harazesim, from over the Mount of Olives and go down the Kidron Valley and enter Yerushalayim through this gate. So the Arabs believe in Midrashim, but they want to stop it from happening. So they did two things to prevent Mashiach from coming that way. One is they bricked up the gate so you can't enter it. And the other is, since Mashiach is preceded by Eliyahu Hanavi, 
who announces Mashiach coming. And Eliyahu Hanavi is a Kohen who cannot become Tameh. So they made a cemetery by the Golden Gate. So Eliyahu Hanavi will not be able to come. And if Eliyahu Hanavi will not be able to come, Mashiach will not be able to come. So that is why the Golden Gate, Shar HaZahav, is bricked up. And that is why uh, there's a cemetery, a, little, a very little cemetery there. Now, of course, this is what you call uh, you know, invalid thinking because Hashem, Hashem will find another way, meaning to say, you're not going to stop Mashiach by, by some trick of blocking a gate and putting in a cemetery. If, it, if that gate doesn't work, you know, there'll be another gate. And anyway, Hashem could disrupt uh, everything anyway, right? <laughs> Block a gate. So Hashem will, will open the gate no matter what. But that's the cheshman. So be it as it may, uh, this is a famous little bit of topography to be aware of. You have on the east of the old city, you have Shar HaZahav. You have Nachal Kidron, Kidron Valley. And then you have Har HaZesim. Okay? Har HaZesim, again, it's a great, great, uh, very, very Cheshava, holy cemetery. But it's not the safest cemetery now because it's located in Arab... Uh, kind of Arab villages are there and the like. Some, there's some Jewish settlements there, but there you have to be a little courageous. It's like living in Hebron a little bit. Okay, all right. So the point I want to make is this. Again, I, I don't know if you've seen this. In the Kidron Valley, there are certain monuments, like different grave monuments and things like that. And one of the monuments goes by the name Yad Avshalom. The memorial for Avshalom. And this is based on a story in Nach, in the book of Shemuel. Remember that Avshalom was the rebellious son of David HaMelech? And he wanted to depose his father and he wanted to kill his father. And what happened was Avshalom was very handsome and beautiful and he had very, very long hair. And as he was riding on a donkey, his hair got tangled in a tree and he was suspended. The donkey like left him hanging, <laughs> literally. And Yoav ben Suruya, who was David's general, comes across and he sees Avshalom and he kills him. He kills him because he thinks the king would like that. And what happened was that David Amelech was grief-stricken and David Amelech said, Avshalom, my son, Avshalom, my son, Avshalom, my son. I wish uh, I would have died instead of you. If only God would have taken my life instead of your life. And David was, even though this was a son who wanted to kill him. But it mentions that when Avshalom was grooming himself to be king, no pun intended on grooming, grooming himself to be king, Avshalom built a monument to glorify himself. So there is a monument, so to speak, in, uh, in Nachal Kidrain that is called Yad Avshalom. And some people think that means that this is the monument that Avshalom built for himself. But in truth, I think many historians say that that is not Avshalom's monument. Uh, that is, again, a, Christ a Christian identification. See, a lot of things were identified by Christians over the years, and they're not necessarily authoritative. So I think Yad Avshalom is another example of a non-authoritative Monument, just like the grave of David Amalek, I, I believe, is considered to be non-authoritative, and even the very naming of Mount Zion, uh, Mount Zion, is from the Christians because Har Tzion in in Tanakh is always the Har Habayit itself. Okay, um, alrighty. 
Uh, so that's a little bit of the of the topography of of, of Nachal Kidrain and the like. Just to be aware. But again, if it's uh, you know you know the safety changes all the time. But you know if you ever feel like taking a little bit of a walk, uh, basically when you leave the Kotel area and you walk out of the what's called the Dung Gate where you would get your buses. So if you simply uh, make a left turn and circle the wall, you'll five or ten minute walk, uh, you will see Nachal Kidron, the Mount of Olives, the Golden Gate, just the other side, just the other side of the, uh, the old city and, and the like. Okay? All right. Uh, how did I get on this? I don't, I don't remember. But, uh, yeah, remind me, huh? Oh, okay. All right. So now let's look at the Mokum HaMikdash and see how it would apply today. You have, to under, look, you have to imagine two sets of, of walls. You have a wall surrounding the whole Temple Mount. Right? Four walls surrounding the Temple Mount. And then inside, it's, 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 it's really a square inside of a square. So you have a big outer square that is the Temple Mount. And in that outer square there are five gates two in the south, and then one on each of the other directions, east, west, right? Now then, imagine you have another square within the square, a smaller square within the square, and that is the courtyard of the temple that is called Azara. And then, in that inner square is a building, a tall building, that is the actual Beis HaMikdash. Okay, again, I'm simplifying, but, but for our purposes, I, I think this would be helpful. So imagine outer square, inner square, and within the inner square, you do have a courtyard, but you also have the, the actual building, which is the Mikdash itself, and it also goes by the word Heichal, and in that building is the Kodesh HaKdash. So, the outer area, the outer square, is called Harabayat. You're entering the Temple Mount. But it's not yet the Makam HaMikdash. When you enter the inner square, which is called Azara, you are now in the area of the Temple, even though it's not the base HaMikdash yet. In the Azara, what will you encounter in the Azara? So you'll see, right, if I walk into the Azara, I see if I'm walking in from the east. So I will see uh, this big Beis HaMikdash in front of me, but I will also see a gigantic altar outside, the Mizbeach, the Karbanos. The Karbanos were not brought in the Beis HaMikdash. The Karbanos were brought in the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash. An open, same thing is true in the Mishkan. The Karbanos were not brought inside of the Mishkan. The Karbanos are brought in the courtyard of the Mishkan. The courtyard of the Mishkan is identical to the Azara of the Beis HaMikdash. In the Torah, the courtyard is called Chatzer HaMishkan. Uh, in the Beis HaMikdash, it's called the Azara. So you're going to see this gigantic altar. You will also see the basin where the Kohanim would wash their hands and feet. Now, I then, if I walk into the Beis HaMikdash, the building, what will I see as I walk in? So I will see a few things. I will see a much smaller altar on which only incense is brought, no karbanos. 
I will see the menorah that is lit every day, and I will see the table on which they put the showbread. And if I keep walking, I'll come to a curtain behind which is the Kodesh HaKadoshim and the Ark. Okay? So be sure, again, I, I'm simplifying, but I think, I think it's helpful even to have uh, a schematic uh, design here. We have an outer square, which is Harabayit. We have inner square. These are walls, without a roof. These are unroofed walls, just walls. Uh, inner walls, which create a courtyard called Azara. In the courtyard, there is the big Mizbeach and the Kior, the basin, and a very tall roofed building called the Beis HaMikdash, or the Heichal. In the Heichal is the golden Mizbeach of Ketores, the Shulchan for the Lechem HaPanim, the Menorah, and if you keep on walking to the back of the Heichal, you have the Kodesh HaKadoshim with the Aron HaKodesh. So, with all of, and by the way, uh, behind the Beis HaMikdash, in other words, the courtyard, the Beis HaMikdash is not flush against the back wall. You have this courtyard, and there's a Beis HaMikdash, but there's even courtyard space in back of the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Because the building is not against the back wall. Remember, you have a wall on all four sides of a courtyard. And you have a building, Beis HaMikdash. But in back of the Beis HaMikdash, there actually is a shetach, an area of a courtyard, 11 amos. Okay? So you, you have a picture of this. Now again, let me point out a little bit of a correction here that I had mentioned that in the Kodesh HaKadoshim you will find the Ark and the Luchos. That is only true for the first Beis HaMikdash. For the second Beis HaMikdash, there was no Aron HaKodesh because one of the last kings hid away the Aron so it shouldn't be taken by the Babylonians. So you had nothing at all in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. It was an empty room. It was totally empty. The Shekhinah was there, but there was no physical object at all. The Azara? Okay. Was, was the Azara also the, the, the room before you entered into, into the space with the, like the Mizdeach, so like the room with the four rooms? Yes, so, so, that, so that, that's something that I skipped, and that is there was a big room before you entered the Azara itself, and uh, that was called the, uh, the Ezra's Nashim, the women's section, that had four rooms in it. So the way you would explain, explain it is this. Again, it was open, open uh, air, meaning no roof. Meaning you had the outer courtyard, which is the Temple Mount. I'm sorry, the outer walls, which are the Temple Mount. And then you have the inner walls, which are the Azara. But then in front of those inner walls, you had a smaller courtyard that was called the Ezra's Nashim. Oh, thank you. The Ezra's Nashim. You are correct. In fact, um, okay, maybe, maybe I'll uh, get you a picture. In fact, you could, uh, uh, let me see if it's big enough. One second there. Fortunate enough, and the pictures will be clear enough. Let's see.
Okay, here you can see it. Can you see it? Um, sorry, <laughs> okay, so the outer, the outermost wall is simply enclosing the temple mount. It is not yet the Makom HaMikdash. The temple mount. That's the outermost wall. Now, then you have an inner courtyard. But you'll see that the inner courtyard is divided into two components. So the front part of the inner courtyard is the Ezra's Nashim, which I didn't talk about. But in here is the temple courtyard that has the Mizbeach, and this is the temple building. Okay, I don't know if this is so helpful, but you can uh, look at it if you want to. Yeah, it's funny that it's not a square. Yeah. Yes, it is not. It is not. It is wider in front than it is in the back. Uh, yeah, at least according to this picture. Not, not all pictures would, would agree with it, but okay. Um, or actually here maybe is a more schematic design. But this is not, this, this doesn't have the temple mount. This only has the Ezra's Nashim, and then the courtyard, the Azara, with the Mizbeach, and then this is the Beis Hamikdash itself, the building, the solid building. Okay, so if you want to check this yourself, uh, this is in Tractates. Well, Midos is the tractate. Midos does not mean character. Midos means dimensions of the second base of Midos. Okay. So now, let's apply all of this to modern life. And what, what does it mean? If we follow the Rambam's view that all of the holiness of the temple applies even today, so that means a Tomei Mace is not allowed Torah to enter what is called Makom HaMikdash. But what is Makom HaMikdash? So the truth is Makom HaMikdash does not include the outer Temple Mount. That would be permitted. Makom HaMikdash only starts from the inner courtyard. Okay? Which actually means that a Tomei Metz, meaning all of us, well, although with women there'll be a complication I'll mention in a moment, we would be allowed to go into the outer part of the Temple Mount as long as we don't enter that which would fall within the inner rectangle, which is considered to be the Azara or the Makam HaMikdash. So why are you told that a religious person is not supposed to go on the Harabayat. According to what I just said, you're allowed to go in the Harabayat as long as you don't go into the area that's called the Azara. So the answer really is fairly simple. The answer is, we are not certain how to configure the, architect, the architectural detail of the temple onto the, ple, uh, onto the present configuration of the Harabayat. Which basically means we're just not sure where the Azora begins. Theoretically, you are allowed to go anywhere that's not the Azora. But since we're not sure 
where the Azora is. Right? We're not sure about Lavin. We're not sure where the Holy of Holies is. I mean, everything is conjecture. We have many, many different opinions. So there are people, mainly in the religious Zionist world, who do have post-Kehalacha that allow them to go on the Temple Mount. So the point that I want you to understand is this is not a machlokas in principle. This is a machlokas in application of principle. Meaning, everybody admits a tome maze can go on the outer rectangle. And everybody admits that, the, that, a, that a tome cannot go in the inner rectangle. There's no machlokas about that. The machlokas is... How confident are you willing to say what is outer and what is inner? So most of the Haredi world says, listen, we're not going to play with fire. It's like walking through a minefield. If you were told, um, just be sure that you stay three inches from a mine and you'll be okay, you know, I wouldn't feel that comfortable saying, oh, the, the mine is three inches away, just be careful. You know, I'd rather avoid the whole thing. Those who want to go basically are willing to make the identification. Okay? So that's why there's a controversy, Bisman whether you can go on the Harabayas. Now again, like the Raivid, for sure it is permitted. Like the Raivid, there's no Isra at all in any part of the Harabayas, even the Holy of Holies. But like the Rambam, it'll be prohibited if it's Mokayim HaMikdash, but it will be permitted if it's not Mokayim HaMikdash, Makom uh, Hamikdash is Azara. Shaloba Makom Hamikdash is Harabayas before you get to the Azara. And there's a machlokas uh, whether we can identify that or not identify that. Now, I do have to say that women are operating with one other level of disability. I mean, men might have this as well. And that is Nida is another form of Tuma. Now, again, I, I want to make it clear that the Torah does describe a nida as temeya, but, but, but that, that shouldn't have a negative connotation. Let me just explain this idea. A tuma does not mean filthy, disgusting. It does not mean that at all. It does mean impure, but the impurity comes from contact with death. Meaning, the same way if you touch or move a dead body, you are tame, because you've come in contact with death, so menstruation is tuma, because menstruation is also a contact with death in the sense that the shedding of, the, in, a, in a more attenuated symbolic way, the shedding of a menstrual lining every month represents a potential life that could have been created this month that was not created. Now, that may sound like a stretch, but in point of fact, the Tuma of Nida is a Tuma that is connected to death. By a man, you have a parallel. A seminal emission also renders a man Tame. Now, let me point out that unlike, however, real Tomas Mes, where the purification that you need is para aduma, for the Tuma of Nida or seminal emission, all you need is mikveh. 
right? So a need does not have to be sprinkled. I mean, if a need would have to be sprinkled with paraduma, the Jewish nation would be extinct. <laughs> Men couldn't be with their wives. So, so do, do keep this in mind. Mace is tame, nida is tame, seminal emission is tame. That's true. But the need for para aduma is only for mace. It is not for nida, and it is not for seminal emission. Okay. Now, here is the thing, though, that's a little technical. Even though I said a tame met is allowed to go on the harabayat that is not within the inner rectangle, a nida or a man with a seminal emission cannot until they go to the mikvah. So this raises a certain issue with single women in particular. That is, since it is our minhag that single women do not go to the mikvah, you could raise a question why that's so, but part of it is we don't want to encourage the idea that they could have relations by going to the mikvah. So it turns out that a single woman would not be able to go in any part of the Harabayat. And even a married woman wouldn't be able to go while she's a nida, until she finished her, her nida. And a man uh, would have to go to the mikvah in terms of seminal emission. So, so the point that I made earlier, that you can go to the Harabayat as long as you don't enter the Azara, that's only true if the only tumma you have is the tumma of mace. But if you have the tumma of nida, or in the case of a man, it's called balkari, a seminal emission, uh, you would not be allowed to go until you purify yourself. And since our custom is that single girls do not go to the mikvah, so there would really be no uh, heter for a single girl who's already had a period, whatever age that would be, uh, she would not have a heter to go in any part of the harabais. Okay? So that's kind of a little bit of the, the background of all of these uh, things. Okay, any, any questions? Hope it makes uh, sense, yeah. Um, does Tuma transfer to like generations? Like, your parents were Tuma and then you were Yeah, so, so here's the thing. Um, Tuma, well, well it's, Tuma is not hereditary, but Tuma does get transmitted by touching. So if I'm a Tuma met and I touch you, your time I met. But, 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 the thing to know is you don't need ashes of paraduma, meaning to say the tuma that is passed down by transfer from another tame uh, can be removed by mikvah alone. So uh, in that sense, therefore, the idea that I have no way of purifying myself because I don't have paraduma, that would not apply to secondary tuma that would only apply to primary tumor, tumor that was direct contact with the dead body. Okay? Alrighty. So that's a little bit of uh, background in terms of, uh, terms of the laws of tumor. So now you, uh, when you hear the controversy about going on the Harabayas, uh, you'll understand what the Machlokas is about. And that is why I believe that even the organizations that allow uh, people to go to the Harabayas, they have tours, uh, they will not allow unmarried women to go, and, and, and this will be the reason, uh, because they have the status of Nida, although some of them are a li little more progressive, and they will simply allow the women to go to the mikvah to be able to, to go. But that's, uh, that itself is a controversial uh, step, huh? Is it, it's not allowed, because Allah says unmarried women can't go to 
Well, it's more of a minute. It's, it's not really a halacha. I mean, the truth of the matter is, in the time of Chazal, unmarried women had to go to the mikvah all the time uh, because of truma. They, they, they shouldn't contaminate the truma, etc. So um, uh, most of our history, unmarried women went to the mikvah. But the minog in recent uh, centuries has been to discourage it. But again, it's not, it's not absolutely forbidden. But uh, generally speaking, it's, it's uh, discouraged. Yeah. Um, in the Parsha last week, it spoke a lot about different animals and their purposes causing the Yes, so let, me, let me talk about that. Okay, okay. So there is Tumas Mes, which is contact with a human corpse. But then there is something called Tumas Nevela, which is contact with a dead animal corpse. So here the halacha is, just like a dead human corpse makes you tame, touching a dead animal corpse makes you tame as well. But there are a few important differences. Difference number one is a human corpse, I'm tame for seven days. An animal corpse, I'm only tame for one day, one day. Number two, for a human corpse, the purification ritual requires the ashes of para aduma as well as mikvah. In the case of an animal corpse, I only have to go to the mikvah, which means, in other words, like this. If I touch the dead animal on Monday, I go to the mikvah on Monday in the day, and I'm tohar at night, that's all. Uh, and the third difference is that uh, a human corpse conveys tuma by touching, moving, or being under the same roof. An animal corpse conveys tuma by touching or moving, but not under the same roof. I'm not, if I'm under the same roof with a dead dog, I do not become tame. Okay, so those are three differences between tumat mes and tumas nevela. Now, you may ask me a question. Dead animals convey tuma? So does that mean every time I eat meat, I'm tame? Right? I mean, meat is a dead animal, right? I know that's how uh, pita vegetarians like to describe it. Do you like, you know, dead animals on your plate? Uh, Etc. So the short answer is this. Uh, a kosher animal that is properly shechted does not convey tuma. You'll notice I called it tumas nevela. The word nevela means an animal that was not shechted. So consequently, tumas nevela will either be a non-kosher animal, like I touch a dead pig. A live pig will not make me tummy, but a dead pig would make me tummy, a dead dog. Or a kosher animal that was not shechted, like it died roadkill or whatever. But a kosher animal that is shechted does not convey tuma. So as a result, uh, you can eat meat and there'll be no problem with tuma. Now, a Kohen does not have a prohibition of tumat nevela. So if a Kohen touches a dead animal, he's tame, just like I'm tame, but he doesn't transgress anything. The sin of a Kohen is only if it's a human corpse. So that's why the Torah discusses uh, the tuma of animals, which comes from uh, touching or carrying but not from Ohel, uh, and it does not need a para aduma. And can that tuma also be transferred? Well, that's a little tricky. Uh, it can be transferred to objects, but not to uh, people. Meaning, if I touch a dead animal, 
and then I touch you, you're not tummy at all. But if I touch an apple, the apple is tummy, right? So, so there are different gradations. Some types of tumor can be transferred to other people. Other types of tumor can be transferred only to objects, to food, and the like. So that's why the sixth order of the Mishnah are the laws of purity and impurity very, very, very intricate uh, halachos. Yeah. Um, what happens if a Cohen, for whatever reason, had to go to the hospital, whatever, he's now in a state of Tumas name? Is it, does he still have a prohibition? Because like, I, yeah. I assume it's like he's like in that state, period. But yeah. Is it like, so that's a, very excellent, that's a very excellent question. This is actually another ruling of the Ravid that is very, very interesting. The Ravid says there is no prohibition for a Kohen who's already Tameh to become Tameh again, because he's already Tameh. So according to the Ravid, once he's Tameh, he can keep on being Tameh. But we don't pass in that. We pass in that every act of contamination is prohibited. So even if the Kohen is Tameh, because of the hospitalization, he's not allowed to go to a cemetery or do that. So we do not follow the Ravid in that way. Okay, yeah. Why? Oh, what's the idea? Well, because it's like saying that uh, every tumma brings a, an additional, deeper state of impurity in you. So just because you're uh, 10 feet below ground doesn't mean you should become 20 feet below ground. You should always go up. Now, let me just say, I just, I just want to end with a very beautiful thought uh, from the Rebbe Taka on a certain aspect of paraduma that we did not discuss. That is, paraduma, which we don't practice today, we don't have it today, is a very problematical, paradoxical law. Because on one hand, when you sprinkle it on people who are ritually impure from Tumas Mace, this is the way they get pure. But the funny thing is, everybody who was handling the ashes to prepare it, they become tummy. There is actually a tumor they get by handling paraduma. Not, and not because of the animal corpse, because really it's ashes. It was shechted. But there's a tuma of paraduma. It's a new category of tuma, the tuma of paraduma. It's not because of tumas nevela. And this is encapsulated in a very famous phrase that perhaps you've memorized or heard before. Mitaher mm-hmm. It purifies those who are tameh. Umitameh and it contaminates those who are pure. This is why it's called a chok. A chok is something we don't understand. How can the same thing do this? So the Rebbe gives a little bit of an explanation. The Rebbe says that, you know, for a Kohen to become Tameh, even for one day, is a major, major inconvenience for a Kohen. A Kohen has to be able to be around the Beis HaMikdash, Right? When the Kohen is Tameh, he says, you've got to leave the Beis HaMikdash. That's a big hardship. So when a Kohen prepares the Paraduma to help another Jew, what is the Kohen doing? The Kohen is putting himself out. The Kohen is putting himself at a disadvantage. So he could do a chesed for a Yid who needs it. So the Rebbe said, that is why Paraduma has the power to purify when a Jew puts himself out to help another Jew, 
even if it's against your best interest, even if it's inconvenient for you, even if it's hard for you, that is a mechanism that brings holiness and purity into the world. So instead of looking at it as a contradiction, right? people say, oh, it's a contradiction. It, it contaminates the pure and it you know, purifies those who are impure. So people say it's a contradiction. The Rebbe, the Rebbe says it's not a contradiction. It's actually a cause and effect. My willingness to become impure is why I could be a vehicle to make you pure. You see what he's saying? He's saying, it's my willingness to incur the detriment of being impure that allows this to create purity into the world. So instead of looking at it as a contradiction, it actually is a cause and effect idea. Okay, that's the idea of the para aduma. Now, people ask Akasha, well, wait a second here. If I sprinkle you with the paraduma and I'm tame, and then I got to get sprinkled, meaning somebody's going to be left holding the bag. <laughs> the answer is no. The answer is the tuma of handling paraduma does not require paraduma to make you pure. So all you have to do is go to the mikvah. So the last guy jumps in the mikvah and he's fine. Okay, the only one that needs paraduma is one who got in direct contact with the dead body, not somebody who became tome because they were handling paraduma ashes. Okay? The person who yep. was touched by someone who's tome mace? Yep. Um, two questions. Are they, are they a only tummy for one day until they go to the mikvah? No, uh, they are tummy for seven days. For seven days? Yeah. But they, don't, they do not need, they do not need paraduma. And do they go on the third and seventh day? One second, let me, let me think about it. Uh, no, no, no. In other words, uh, since they don't have paraduma, they only have mikvah, so they just go on the seventh day and they'll be fine. And could they transfer tummy to anyone else? Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, they can to transfer it to another person, but that would only be one day. Okay? So, um, actually, let me just think about this again. I, I, one second, one second. I may, I may, be, I may be incorrect here. One second. Um, if I touch a mace, I'm tame for seven days. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I want to correct myself. So if I touch a mace, I'm tame for seven days. I need paraduma. Three and seven, I go to the mikvah. If I then touch you, yeah, you're only tummy for one day. You're tummy for one day. So you can go, so you can go to the mikvah that same day and you'll be tar. Yeah, it's not seven days. Yeah. And then I can't transfer it to anyone else. And you cannot transfer it at all to anybody else. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the way this works is, I'll, I'll give you the vocabulary to remember this. Uh, a mace is called avi avosatuma, the father of the father of impurity. The person who touches the mace is called Av Hatuma, a father of impurity. The person who he touches is called Rishon Latuma, the first level. So a person can become Tame only from an Av or an Avi Avot, but a person cannot become Tame from a Rishon. So that would mean mace is Avi Avot. If I touch the mace, I'm Av. If I touch a person, that person's a Rishon. He's Tame for one day. If the Rishon touches another person, that person would be a Shani. He's not Tame at all. Because an Adam can only accept Tuma from an Av or an Avi Avot Tuma. Okay, it's, it's, it's plenty confusing. I, I recognize that, but that's kind of how, how it yeah. works.
already. Is there any time where a shame in the would be actually punished? Yes, yes, because this rule that I just told you only applies to people. It does not apply to food. Mm-hmm. So, so, for example, uh, let's take the same example. I touch the dead body, so I'm an avatuma. Right? I touch an apple, the apple is a rishon latuma. If the re- apple touches a pear, the pear is a shani latuma. So, with respect to fruits, it can go up to shani, but not shalishi. With respect to people, it can only go up to risha. But if the fruits are truma fruits, it can go up to shalishi. <laughs> One more generation. Right? So, how far tuma can go depends on what it is and how holy it is. If it's korbanas, you can go up to the fourth generation. Okay? But a person only gets tome from, uh, from an alpha tuma. Okay, not from a rishon tuma. Okay. Alrighty, I'll be well and have a good uh, week and a chodesh tov.